0: And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. By the 5th century AD, the Roman Empire was in shambles. Centuries of invading armies... Epidemic diseases and government corruption had taken its toll on what had once been the mightiest empire in the Western world. By the year 476, the Roman Empire was but an empty shell of what it had once been. This left a major power vacuum in Europe that a number of monarchs and political forces attempted to fill. But over the next thousand years, the most powerful political force that sprung up proved to be the Roman Catholic Church. Over the centuries, the church became insanely wealthy and influential throughout Europe. Kings and queens from all over the land deferred to the church's wishes. In exchange, the church would grant certain monarchs their blessing, giving them an air of holy legitimacy. But all this wealth and influence also brought with it a great deal of corruption. This was especially epitomized by a particularly notorious family of Italian and Spanish origins, rose to prominence in the 15th and 16th centuries. The House of Borgia became synonymous with greed and treachery. Their particular noble line gained tremendous influence in the church, so much so that two of their family members actually went on to become pope. In the year 1455, Alfonso de Borgia was rewarded for years of service to the King of Aragon by being selected as the next leader of the Catholic Church, Pope Calixtus III. Pope Calixtus would die of malaria just three years later. It was one of his nephews, Rodrigo, who helped select the man's successor, Pope Pius II. Now, Rodrigo was a special breed. He was smart and ambitious, and he had a cutthroat nature about him that ensured he always got what he wanted. Over the following years, he managed to cozy up to Pope Pius as well as a number of other influential cardinals. As time went on, Rodrigo and his family continued to accrue wealth and influence within the Catholic Church. As more and more of the Borgia clan arrived in Rome, Rodrigo set about installing them into a number of powerful positions. Pretty soon, the Borgias became the most powerful family in Rome. All of this was leading up to Rodrigo's ultimate goal of becoming the Pope. But rumors dogged him about his multiple illicit affairs. And for a time, that held him back from attaining the papal throne for a number of years. In 1484, he came close, but the conclave of cardinals ultimately decided to select Pope Innocent VIII instead. But Rodrigo would get his shot again just four years later in 1492 after Pope Innocent died. This time, he managed to bribe enough members of the papal conclave for them to select him to become the next pontiff, Pope Alexander VI. As Pope, Alexander VI indulged in the good life. Throughout his life, the former Rodrigo Borgia went on to sire twelve children through a number of mistresses. Some of these occurring after he became Pope. The most famous of these offspring were his son César, whom he would appoint as a cardinal shortly after becoming Pope. César shared his father's cutthroat nature as well as a nasty habit of killing off his political rivals. There was also his daughter Lucretia Borgia who throughout her life was married off to a number of nobles for political gain. It's also long been rumored she had been having an incestuous relationship with her father. Greed was the primary motivating factor for Pope Alexander throughout his life. In order to grow his wealth, Alexander would sell both cardinalships and indulgences. These were written proclamations that exonerated wicked individuals from being punished for their sins in the afterlife. You could certainly fill an entire podcast just with stories of all the murder, incest, and duplicity that followed after Alexander VI became Pope. But there's one story in particular that bears telling here. And it all surrounds something that may have occurred in the days before and just after Pope Alexander's death in 1503. Although some historic accounts state that the 73-year-old Pope died of malaria, there have long been rumors he was actually poisoned possibly in his own murderous plot that backfired on him. So the story goes that Pope Alexander passed an edict claiming the estates of deceased cardinals would become the property of the Holy See. Afterwards, Pope Alexander set in motion a plan to kill a certain wealthy cardinal for his money. On the night he was about to put his plan into action, Alexander and his son Caesar invited themselves to dinner at the home of their intended victim. The Borgias, being considerate house guests insisted they bring the wine which of course was poisoned but as the two men traveled to the banquet alexander realized he'd forgotten something important he possessed an enchanted amulet that he believed made him invulnerable to poison so just to be safe he sent a companion cardinal carafa back to retrieve it but when cardinal carafa returned to the pope's bedroom to get the amulet he was delayed in returning that's because of what he saw when he got there When Cardinal Carafa opened the door to Pope Alexander's bedroom there, in the center of the room, he had a vision of a black-draped stand called a bier, surrounded by torches. Atop of the bier lay a man's corpse, but not just any corpse. It was someone Cardinal Carafa knew very well. And at the same time, he knew it was impossible for this particular corpse to be here, considering he had just left the man alive and well a short time before. Cardinal Carafa was staring wide eyed at the corpse of Pope Alexander VI. According to legend, at the same time Cardinal Carafa was having his remarkable encounter, the banquet kicked off and Pope Alexander was served a glass of wine. But although Alexander had given strict instructions as to who should be served from the poison bottle, there was a mix up behind the scenes and Pope Alexander was served a cup of his own poison. Soon after taking a sip, Pope Alexander declared that he wasn't feeling well. Within days, he was dead. According to the story, Cardinal Carafa wasn't feeling particularly well either, especially a few days later when the Pope's body was laid out prior to his funeral in a sight that was all too familiar to the Cardinal, because he had seen it all before. They laid the Pope's body out on a black draped bier, surrounded by torches. Now, of course, there's a lot about this story that's impossible to prove, but history is full of recorded tales of people who appeared to inexplicably be in two places at once. In fact, it's happened so many times and in so many places around the world that many cultures have come up with their own particular terms for this phenomena. But of all the names for stories of people who claim to have seen identical copies of someone in a place they know they couldn't possibly be, there's one term in particular that stands out. It's a word from the German language that's become familiar to many of us. Doppelganger. I'm Nate Hale, and so am I. And this is The Conspirators. At the time of this recording, there are an estimated 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. And if you go to any major city on earth you're going to encounter massive clusters of people new york city alone has an estimated population of more than eight million the city of london is closer to nine million and each and every one of us likes to think that we are in our own ways unique now of course there are countless siblings who are born as part of a pair of identical twins triplets and so on but have you ever been in a crowd of people and spotted someone you thought you knew only to realize it was actually someone else who looked eerily like them? There are websites and books of photography devoted to this unusual genetic coincidence. For whatever reason, there are people out there who have no blood relation to one another, who look startlingly alike. In 2016, a University of Adelaide researcher compared the faces of 4,000 individuals, analyzing a number of key characteristics between them. She calculated that the odds were long against there being two total strangers who looked alike. She determined the odds to be about one in a trillion. And yet, people encounter their doppelgangers all the time, sometimes with devastating consequences. In 1999, a man named Richard Anthony Jones was convicted of aggravated robbery in Kansas after several eyewitnesses came forward who swore Jones mugged a woman in a Walmart parking lot. The problem is Jones had a solid alibi as he was attending a birthday party miles away with several of his own corroborating witnesses. But the jury wasn't swayed and Jones was convicted of the robbery and sent to prison. Over the years, Jones continued to insist he was innocent. Even stranger still, while he was in prison, he kept having other prisoners come up to him thinking he was someone else. Eventually, Jones' attorneys were able to track down another man named Ricky Lee Amos who looked astonishingly similar to Richard Anthony Jones. So much so that when the victim was shown both men's mugshots at the same time, she couldn't tell them apart. Sometime later, Jones's conviction would be overturned. But there's a big difference between two people with identical features crossing paths and other stories recorded throughout history where credible witnesses have reported seeing someone they knew far away from the place where others would insist that person actually was. The term doppelganger, which translates to double walker, didn't really come into popular use until the mid-19th century. In ancient Egyptian mythology, they used the term ka to refer to a spirit double of another person that had all the same memories and feelings as their counterpart. The ancient Greeks used the term eidolon to describe such an apparition. One legend from the Trojan War claims that an eidolon of Helen of Troy appeared before Paris, helping to bring the war to an abrupt end. In Irish folklore, they call this particular being a fetch, a term that's often used interchangeably with doppelganger. Typically, a fetch is described as a mere shadow of a person, usually seen at a distance and will often fade away after only a few minutes. Fetches are described as airy and are often considered to be an omen, an either good or bad omen depending on which time of day you see them in. According to Irish folklore, it's supposed to be good luck if you see a fetch in the early morning, although if you were to spot a fetch at nightfall, it meant you almost certainly were going to die. One story recounted by folklorist Christina Hole in her book Haunted England tells us of the story of Sir William Napier, who stopped at an inn on his way to Bedfordshire for his home in Berkshire. But when he entered his room, he was shocked to see his own corpse lying on the bed. Shortly after returning home to Berkshire, Napier died. Back in 1626, several dozen Jumano Indians arrived unannounced at the mission of San Agustin de la Esleta, located about 13 miles south of what would be today Albuquerque, New Mexico. These Indians were all carrying crosses and they demanded to speak to the head of the mission. The head of the mission realized this group of travelers weren't from any of the local tribes. The group explained that they had traveled hundreds of miles to seek out the mission. And that they had done so because a young woman in a blue robe had appeared to them several times and told them they needed to make this journey. This lady in blue had instructed them in the teachings of the church. And as a result, this would lead to the church establishing their first missions in the Mexican territory known as Texas. But there's another side to the story as well, because this particular lady in blue was said to be a real Spanish nun named Maria Araña. And while it was claimed that at the same time Maria began appearing across the Atlantic Ocean to an isolated tribe in the Mexican territories, the nun was also simultaneously living in her convent in Spain. This would all culminate in Maria being investigated during the Spanish Inquisition. In the end, the Inquisitors decided not to convict Maria, because it's thought they came to believe her ability to bi-locate herself was actually a true gift from God. Although it probably didn't hurt that she just so happened to be good friends with the King of Spain either. In 1612, the English poet John Donne claimed to have seen his wife's doppelganger. Donne was visiting friends in Paris at the same time his wife was due to give birth. Donne's friend, Sir Robert Drury, would later recount how one afternoon he had come across Donne looking pale and stricken with grief. When Drury asked him what was wrong, Donne told him that he had just had the most dreadful vision. It was a vision of his wife appearing before him in his bedroom, and she was weeping. When she turned to face him in her arms, she held the body of a dead child. When Don returned home later on, he was met with the shocking news that his wife had given birth to a stillborn baby. A baby that was born at the exact same moment he'd had his vision in Paris. During the Salem witch trials, one of the most common accusations made against the alleged witches was that they would sometimes appear as specters inside their accusers' homes. Whereas we know now, the Salem witch trials were driven by mass hysteria. Back then, this testimony was accepted in court as fact and used to sentence these people to death. On July 8, 1822, the English poet Percy Bysshe Shelley drowned in the Bay of Spezia in Italy. Percy Shelley's widow was none other than Mary Shelley, the author of a little book you may have heard of named Frankenstein. About a month after her husband's death, Mary Shelley wrote to a friend describing how in the weeks leading up to his death, her husband had a series of terrifying encounters with his own doppelganger. What is also interesting about this particular story is that several of Shelley's friends also claim to have seen him too in places he couldn't possibly have been. For example, a family friend named Jane Williams, who was staying with the Shelleys, claimed to have been sitting on the veranda when she saw Percy walking up a dead end street one day. Williams remained sitting right where she was and kept watching the road, expecting to see Shelley turn around and pass by again once he reached the dead end. But the poet just seemed to vanish into thin air as i mentioned percy shelley told his wife mary he had been having visions of himself in the months leading up to his death once this vision even spoke to him percy told mary that one time he was walking alone on the terrace when a man stepped out of the shadows and approached him he was startled to see he was staring himself right in the face when the stranger approached him he asked him a question how long do you mean to be content A few weeks later, on July 8th, Percy Shelley drowned when his ship wrecked during a severe storm. Sir Frederick Rash was a former military leader and member of British Parliament who lived throughout the late 19th to the early 20th century. In March 1905, he was supposed to participate in an important political debate. But on the day he was supposed to be in Parliament, he couldn't leave his home because he'd come down with a severe case of influenza. Rash had spent months preparing for this debate and he was crushed about not being able to attend and yet some people later claimed that rash actually did make an appearance at one point another Parliament member Sir Gilbert Parker swore that he turned around in his seat and was surprised to see rash sitting toward the back of the room near the door according to Sir Gilbert rash looked pale and resolute but the next time Gilbert turned around rash was gone Later on, Gilbert would speak with several other members of Parliament, including the future Prime Minister, Henry Campbell. And they all confirmed that they too had seen Frederick Rash in the room with them. Even though that was impossible because Rash was home many miles away, sick in bed. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. Before we continue, I need to tell you about another podcast Conspirators listeners might be interested in. Med Crimes is a true crime podcast with a medical twist. The show is hosted by two healthcare professionals who love true crime. Devin is a seasoned registered nurse who knows the ins and outs of the healthcare system as a whole, including specifically long-term care, wounds and insurance, and Medicare reimbursement. Kate is a nurse practitioner who specializes in caring for the acutely ill in a hospital setting, specializing in general medicine. The two are the best of friends and prior college roommates who studied and grew together. First as friends, then as medical professionals, and now as moms who love true crime. Together, they offer a unique perspective on the cases they cover. Each case, whether widely publicized or more obscure, is always of a criminally medical nature. They not only discuss the case itself in the investigation, but the medical science behind it. While the podcast appeals to the medical community, Kate and Devin take care to carefully explain the medications, procedures, and anatomy behind the criminal acts so that it is understandable to anyone. Some of the more popular cases include Donald Klein, the fertility specialist and obstetrician who inseminated unsuspecting women with his own genetic material, bothering almost 100 children. You may have heard about Rodonda Vaught, the Tennessee nurse whose medication error led to the death of an innocent patient. We cover the error itself in detail, as well as the investigation, trial, and media ramifications. Or listen to the tale of Christopher Dunch, the evil orthopedic surgeon who purposely maimed and killed his patients. Tate and Devin dive into the specifics of many of his procedures, including what went horribly wrong. While the show gets very medical and scientific, the format is relaxed and relatable. By the end of your first listen, you may just want to be their best friend, too. You can check out Med Crimes wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Probably the most famous doppelganger story of them all has to be that of Mademoiselle Emily Sagui. The New Elk School was an academy for daughters of nobility living in Livonia along the shores of the Baltic Sea. This was an area in Northern Europe which, over the centuries, would be broken up into three separate countries, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. The New Elk School was in the region that would become modern-day Latvia. This was a finishing school for girls a place where they would learn the life lessons that were expected of young ladies of noble birth. In 1845, there were 42 students attending the prestigious school, all under the care of Principal bouche One of these young women was a girl named Julie, the daughter of the Baron of Goldenstube, and it's through her retelling later in life that we get much of this strange tale. On one occasion, some of the girls were preparing to attend a party. One of the teachers, a French woman named Mademoiselle Emily Sagui was helping one of the girls get dressed for the ball. That girl's name was Antony von Rangel, and she later reported that when she turned to look at herself in the mirror, she was startled to see two identical copies of her teacher standing there helping her fasten her dress. This encounter was reportedly so frightening to the young girl she passed out. This wasn't the first time something strange like this was reported about Mademoiselle Sagie either. Emily Segui was attractive and well-liked among her students. She was described as being in her thirties with pale blue eyes and dark hair. It was said that she had left her home in Dijon to come teach at the school, although by some accounts she also had family living in that area of Livonia. It wasn't long after Mademoiselle Segui started at the school before rumors began to spread that there was something odd about the new teacher. It was often said that the woman appeared to be in two places at once. One student might mention they had just passed Segui in the hallway, while another would insist they just saw her inside a classroom at the very same moment. And it didn't just happen on an individual basis, either. One day, 13 girls were in a classroom with Mademoiselle Segui, who stood at the front of the room writing on the blackboard. But while her back was turned to the class, the girls were all startled to see a second Mademoiselle Segui standing behind the first one. These two women looked completely identical, right down to the way they dressed and moved. This second Emily Sagi mimicked all the movements the first one was doing. But her movements were slower, as if she were wading through water. Then, just as suddenly as the duplicate had appeared, she faded away before the entire class. Over time, other such stories were reported. Some nights it was claimed that two of the teachers would appear next to each other at the dinner table. One would be using silverware, and the other would be making the same movements but with no silverware in her hands. On one warm summer day in 1846, all of the school's 42 students were gathered around a table in a large room overlooking the garden. It was an embroidery class, and one wall of the room was made up of a series of tall glass windows. From their vantage point, the young women all had a clear view of Mademoiselle Segui picking flowers in the garden and putting them in a basket. At one point, the girls ran out of blue silk, so the supervising teacher got up and left the room to retrieve some more. That was when Mademoiselle Segui suddenly appeared in the teacher's empty chair. Something was off about this Mademoiselle Segui as well. This Mademoiselle Segui didn't speak or move. And yet, when the girls turned to look back out the windows, they could clearly see another Mademoiselle Segui still standing out in the garden. Although she too had become noticeably less animated. In fact, she was barely moving at all now. A couple of the students worked up the nerve to get up and try to touch the Mademoiselle Segui that was in the room with them. They later stated it felt like this Mademoiselle Segui was somehow insubstantial, almost like you were trying to push your finger through loose fabric. One of the girls stepped even closer, then right through the apparition before it began to fade away. As soon as the second Mademoiselle Segui vanished from the room, the other Segui began to move about normally in the garden like nothing had happened. Although now more girls were reporting the additional detail that When there were two of them, they both moved sluggishly, as if out of energy. When the school finally let out for the summer holiday, many of these girls went home and told their parents about the bizarre things they had witnessed. And most of these nobles weren't exactly pleased to hear this news either. When the New Elk School reopened its doors following the holiday, only 12 of the 42 students returned. Fearing financial ruin, the school's principal had no choice but to fire Mademoiselle Segui. Julie, the daughter of the Baron of Goldenstube, We'll go on to relate this story to an American writer named Robert Dale Owens. She told him that on Mademoiselle Segui's last day, she was within earshot of Principal Boucher's office when he was forced to let her go. Julie heard Segui exclaim the words, "Not again!" Then she overheard Segui telling the principal that the same series of events that had happened to her 18 times before. Julie also told Robert Dale Owens that Mademoiselle Segui did not actually leave town right away because she had family who lived there. Julie said she went to visit her former teacher once to see how she was getting along. She was met at the door by several young children who said they didn't know where Aunt Emily was at the moment, but they added she wouldn't be difficult to find, because there were always two Aunt Emilies around. In more recent years, science has tried to explain the so-called doppelganger effect. And although stories like that of Emily Sagui are a little too out there to explain away with science, there actually are some possible neurological explanations for people who claim to see duplicates of themselves. More than two decades ago, when neurologist Peter Brueger was still a Ph.D. student at the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland, he became interested in finding scientific explanations for some paranormal phenomena. A fellow neurologist referred a patient to Bruger after the man nearly died trying to escape his own doppelganger. The incident began after the 21-year-old man stopped taking his anticonvulsant medication. One morning, he decided to call off work and instead stay home drinking beer all day in bed. After laying around for hours, he finally got up but was feeling unusually dizzy. Then when he turned around, he was shocked to see himself still lying in bed where he'd just been. The man began to get irrationally angry at this duplicate for being so lazy and not getting out of bed and go to work. He climbed back into bed and tried shaking his other self, but it didn't do any good. All the while this was happening, the man's sense of self shifted from one version of himself to the other. Sometimes when he started shaking the other version of himself, his vantage point would shift, and he would suddenly see himself kneeling over himself and shaking him. Soon, anger turned to fear in the young man. He became suddenly terrified of this other person who looked just like him. So much so that he ran and took a flying leap out of his bedroom window. Luckily, the man survived. His apartment was only on the fourth floor and his fall was broken by some trees on the way down. When Dr. Bruegger examined the young man, he was able to determine he actually had a brain tumor that, once removed, stopped his hallucinations about his doppelganger altogether. Hallucinations of this variety are classified as autoscopic phenomena, a term which comes from a couple of Greek words meaning to look at oneself. At its most basic form, such hallucinations give the individual the impression there is someone else in the room with them. As these hallucinations progress, though, they can produce the sensation known as an out-of-body experience, or even in some extreme cases can create the illusion you are looking at an exact copy of yourself. In other words, a doppelganger. Some scientists have even been able to reproduce this effect under lab conditions by inserting electrodes inside the brains of test subjects, and using electricity to stimulate the parts of the brain that produce such hallucinations. But not everyone who has ever seen a doppelganger has had a brain tumor. Nor can a simple misfiring of the brain's synapses explain away all the reported cases where this has occurred. Sigmund Freud once wrote an essay titled The Uncanny, in which he describes his belief about what it is about seeing your doppelganger that makes it so unsettling. Freud writes that there is something deeply unnerving about seeing something familiar yet having it appear under unusual circumstances. Think about the creepy twin girls in The Shining. There's nothing inherently creepy about encountering a couple of little girls in a hallway. It's only when you realize the hotel is supposed to be empty, and those little girls should not be there, that things start to get scary. Freud goes on to explain that a person who sees his or her double is actually confronting the dual natures of themselves. This might manifest itself as a split personality or even a person's fear of confronting their own darkest emotions. Probably brought on by repressed feelings of guilt or rage. There's also another component to this as well that Freud touches on. The idea that the doppelganger is a direct manifestation of our own sense of mortality. Meaning, when we see our doppelganger, it's actually our minds trying to come to terms with the idea that we all one day will die. One recurring theme you'll see in a lot of doppelganger stories is this fear of impending doom. And if the stories are to be believed, doppelgangers often appear as a harbinger of death. In 1796, Catherine the Great, Russia's longest-standing female ruler, was awoken by a loud noise in the middle of the night. The 76-year-old ruler angrily got out of bed and threw open her bedroom doors, demanding to know what all the commotion was about. She heard her servants crying out from inside the throne room. When Catherine entered the throne room, she stopped dead in her tracks. Her doppelganger was seated in her throne, looking pale and barely moving. The real Catherine immediately ordered her guards to shoot the apparition. The story gets a little vague as to what actually happened to the doppelganger after that. But one thing we do know is Catherine the Great died of a stroke six weeks after the incident. Then there's the story of Abraham Lincoln. His election in 1860 was one of the most pivotal presidential elections in American history. It was a hard-fought battle against several political opponents with slavery versus states' rights being the key political debate going on between the presidential nominees. Lincoln would emerge victorious, becoming the 16th president of the United States and changing the course of American history. But the election took an emotional and physical toll on Lincoln. On the night of his election, he was bone-tired and couldn't wait to lie down on his couch at home. But as the newly elected president lay there, his eyes strayed toward a mirror on one side of the room. Where he saw his reflection president lincoln was startled to see that there were two faces staring back at him one was his face as he knew it but although the other face was still recognizably his this other face was pale and gaunt lincoln rose up to his feet and looked around the room thinking someone else was there but he was all alone but when he stared back into the mirror there were still two versions of himself looking back at him lincoln rushed from the room and found his wife mary and told her what he had just seen. But when he brought Mary back into the room, Lincoln could no longer see his doppelganger in the mirror. Mary Todd Lincoln was a longtime believer in the supernatural, as well as being a big believer in omens and premonitions. And after hearing her husband's story, she offered a possible explanation to him. She theorized that this apparition was a vision of the future, one which meant Lincoln would be reelected, but would not survive through his second term as president. Which, as I'm sure you're aware, she was right. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that I have a Patreon account set up where patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes. In fact, by the time you hear this, I'll have just added the latest mini-episode Go check it out if you want to hear about one of the creepiest public parks in the United States. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in the podcasting charts and helps spread the good word to more people. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcast. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Check us out and let us know how we're doing. You can even send me an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.